What I'm going to share with you this morning, I pray, has the capacity to be life-changing for you. That's what I pray. It's not about Crossway Church this morning. I'm not making an appeal based upon Crossway Church. I'm making an appeal to you to really consider your heart, your giving of your time, your talents, that's your abilities that God has given you, and your treasures for the purpose of building up the kingdom of God. According to a survey by the Consumer Credit Counseling Service, 60% of married people report fighting about money with their spouse. In addition, 19% said that financial problems negatively affect their relationship with their parents, while 13% said the same was true for their friends. 93% report that financial problems increase the amount of stress in their lives. Money and divorce facts from eHarmony. Money money may be the main reason for divorce according to um, eHarmony. Statistics do show that the majority of marriages that end in divorce cite money problems as the number one reason overall for divorce. Obviously, arguing over finances could cause irreparable damage in a relationship. And anybody that's married in here under the sound of my voice knows arguing about money is never fun. It's difficult. And if you're married, you've done it. Don't matter if you're rich. Don't matter if you're poor. You've argued a time or two over finances. In a study titled The Couple's Guide to Love and Money, they found out in 2003 that 75% of couples who divorce before the age of 30 cite money problems as the main cause. Three out of four divorces that end before the age of 30 say that money was the main reason of the divorce. Now, to the Bible. You came here to hear the Bible this morning. You might be interested to know that the Bible speaks about prayer in 500 verses thereabouts. It speaks about faith in less than 500 verses. It speaks about money and possessions in more than 2,000 verses. In Luke chapter 3, you remember when John the Baptist was baptizing and everybody came to him before Jesus took over the stage? In Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist, he, he was a strong preacher, and he basically said, Repent, you brood of vipers, because the axe is going to be cut to the tree, and the trees are going to be thrown in the fire, and the people said, Well, what must we do? He said to the tax collectors, don't be taking more taxes than what you're supposed to take. He said to the Roman soldiers, be content with your wages. When the young man, the rich young ruler, you remember when he came to Jesus, he said, what must I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, keep the commandments. And the young man said, oh, I've kept all the commandments since my birth. And Jesus said, I'll go and sell all your possessions and give them to the poor. And the man went away sorrowful. It's interesting that in both those situations, when people were asked, 
in essence, what must they do to be saved, a reference to how they handled their wealth came from John the Baptist and Jesus. Now, I want you to understand something. The Bible does not teach, and I'm not teaching, that how you give your money and what you do with it somehow can cause you to be saved or lost. That's not what I'm saying, and that's not what the Bible's teaching. But what it does teach us with over 2,000 verses is that how we handle money is a reflection of our heart. The Bible says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So, I mean, it's possible. Paul said, if I give all that I have to help the poor, if I give it all away and have not love, I am nothing. And so it's possible to give all that you have and be doing it for the wrong motive. So don't get the false impression this morning that you can give your way into heaven because you can't. But you do need to know that how we see finances, how we handle wealth, is a direct reflection of our heart towards God. I'm going to get into the text this morning. I want, to, I want us to look at Old Testament and New Testament. Basically what I want to do because this is really all that matters. It doesn't matter so much what Joplin thinks. It doesn't matter so much what you think. It matters what the Word of God says. That's what matters. And what I want to ask you to do this morning, one of the reasons I really, really, really don't like talking about money, there's two reasons. Two reasons. Number one, we live in a culture where there's been some charlatans who have just really abused this in the church and have, have absolutely did damage to the name of Christ. And when you see those, those fools that are, that are preying upon innocent people and, and, and causing people to make terrible decisions to just give all that they have and hope that next week everything's going to be different, it just makes you want to stay away from it altogether. It's like, I don't want to have anything to do with that. And I want you to understand something. God's principles about giving, it's not give 77 bucks and then next week God's going to give you tenfold. What you need to know, the Bible is about economic empowerment. And that means that you've got to make wise decisions over a period of time. It's about sowing and reaping. It's not about pulling the lever, uh, the big great lever in the sky of God and having everything hit three sevens because you gave the right thing and then the showers of heaven open up. What you need to know is that real biblical finances is about learning to make wise decisions. It's about learning to strategically and, and calculatedly to give some, to save some, and to spend some. There is, the, and it's learning to be consistent over a period of time being guided by biblical principles. And you cannot refuse to keep the principles of the Word of God and then expect God to bless your foolishness. It doesn't work. You cannot buy everything that you want and then beg God for what you need. We must learn to make wise economic decisions. Decisions of faith, decisions of trust. But the first reason that I, I have a difficult time with this is because there's just so much foolishness out there, and I don't even want to address with that. The second reason is this, and this is what I want to talk to you about this morning. Most people have already made up their mind what they feel, how they give. They've, uh, when their conscience begins to, when guilt begins to sink in, they, 
They just change what they believe about the Word of God so that the guilt goes away. And so what happens is most people have already made up their minds. And so when they hear that pastor is going to preach on tithe, here's what the average person thinks. Well, we have to do this every year, year and a half. So I can make it 35 minutes, just act like I'm listening, and then walk right out those doors and keep doing what I've did for the last several years. And if you know anything about me, I'm not here to preach that type of a message. I don't even like getting up and if that's what we're going to do, why even meet? I mean, I'm just not a go through the motions kind of a guy. And so what I want to plead with you to do this morning, I want to plead with you to hear me. Take down your guards for just a little bit. Take down your preconceived notions about what the Bible does or doesn't teach about finances. I promise you we're going to look at the Word of God and have an open heart this morning, just say, God, I showed up and I believe you speak. So speak to me. Reveal to me what you want me to learn this morning. Be willing to be encouraged. Be willing to be corrected. Be willing to let God speak to your heart. Amen? Okay. So what I want to do is I want to show you what the Bible teaches about giving. We're going to start with the Old Testament. We're going to move to the New Testament. And then we're going to have a conclusion. That's pretty easy, isn't it? So let's start with the Old Testament examples of tithing. And um, in Genesis chapter 14, you might want to be a note taker. I promise you, I thought about turning this into a three-part series, and I thought nobody will come back next week. <laughs> so uh, you be a note taker. Some of the passages we're going to read all the way through. Some of them, for the sake of time, I'm going to tell you about them. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 14. In Genesis chapter 14 is when Abraham goes and he fights off a king named, how do you say his name, Kedor Laomer, and he rescues Lot. You may remember the story. And then he did this with just 300 men. It was an amazing victory. And not only did he rescue Lot, but Abraham took back all the goods that had been stolen from Sodom. And on the way back, this mysterious figure named Melchizedek the Bible tells us in Genesis 14, he was the high priest of that time. He was the priest of the Most High God. In verse 18 of Genesis chapter 14, Melchizedek met Abraham and he blessed him. And in verse 20, it simply says that Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. This is the first time that we ever see that see a tithe. If you don't know what the word tithe means, it simply means tenth. This is the first time in the whole Bible that we see the tithe take place. And one of the important things that you need to know about the Bible is that generally speaking, the first time that something shows up, we have what's called the law of first mention. And it means that from then on, throughout the rest of the Bible, the heart of whatever took place that first time applies to the rest. Now here's what you need to know about the first time. There was no law. Moses had not given the law yet. Abraham did not have to do this. And so the very first time we see the tithe, it was done with the motivation of just a heart that wanted to give. Abraham gave a tenth. There's no command anywhere, even in the law, to give one-tenth of your uh, recaptured goods to the priest. But Abraham did it. So our first encounter with tithing is one where the giver is not paying God to stir God to action. But the giver is responding to God 
because God had just fought for him and won a great battle. So real biblical tithing from everything that we discuss now through the rest of this sermon is one, I'm not trying to stir God to do something. I'm not trying to trick God by giving Him this much money so that He has to give me tenfold because brother so-and-so said that if I would, then it would happen in a month. And if it didn't happen, I guess you just didn't have faith. Stay away from that stuff. Trust me, don't do it. Don't do it. We give to God because we love God. Because He's been faithful to us. Because He's fought battles for us. Because He has blessed us. We're not trying to get something out of God. Because everything we have, God already gave. I'm not giving God something I made and now He has more. I'm giving God back a portion of all that He's given me. Now the next time that we hear of tithing is in Genesis chapter 28. Abraham's grandson, Jacob, has just heard in a dream. God has showed him that he's going to increase his... uh, his descendants, and that his name is going to be great among all the world. Jacob responds with a vow in verses 20 through 22 with a promise that climaxes with this. And of all you have given me, I will give the tenth to you. Now what I want you to notice now about the second time we see tithing in the Bible, long before the law was ever given, Jacob says, of all you've given me. Now we have the biblical precedent that all that we have, God has given. You say, well, I worked hard. I'll bet you did. And thank God that you did. But God gifted you with talents to work hard. God gifted you with wisdom to to accomplish the things that you've accomplished. God's gifted you with strength to do the things that you do. And so in one capacity or another, all that I am, all that I have of me, all that is good, that, it, that, that, that works in me and through me, it's not in and of myself, but it comes from Him. And to that degree, all that I have, God, You have given me. So the tithe is not really something that Jacob has produced and then transfers to God's possession. But the tithe is a symbolic statement that all that we have is from God and that it is all at God's disposal. Then at the time of Moses, tithing was made part of the law, which governed the people of Israel. There are two key texts, and we're going to look at those this morning. The first is Leviticus chapter 27, verses 30 through 32. And I'm going to turn there and we'll actually read those together. Leviticus chapter 27, verses... 30 through 32. And all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If a man wants it all to redeem any of his tithes, he shall add one-fifth to it. And concerning the tithe of the herd or the flock of whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. And then let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 14, verses 22 through 29. And we'll be there for a little while. 
Deuteronomy chapter 14, beginning in verse 22. You shall truly tithe all the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year. And you shall eat before the Lord your God in the place where He chooses to make His name abide. The tithe of your grain and your new wine and your oil of the firstborn of your herds and your flocks that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. But if the journey is too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe, or if the place where the Lord your God chooses to put His name is too far from you when the Lord your God has blessed you, then you shall exchange it for money. Take the money in your hand and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses. And you shall spend that money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen or sheep, for wine or similar drink, for whatever your heart desires, you shall eat there before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your household. You shall not forsake the Levite who is within your gates, for he has no part nor inheritance with you. At the end of every third year, you shall bring out the tithe of your produce of that year and store it up within your gates. And the Levite, because he has no portion nor inheritance with you, and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates may come and eat and be satisfied, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. I want to share with you five observations from our text about tithing. First of all, According to verse 23, there was to be a yearly trip to the holy place, the place God put His name. Later, that was Jerusalem. Now, in their day and time, is a little different than ours. We have a church that we go to every week. And um, they had places that they met on a regular basis, but God had commanded at certain portions of the year that they would actually travel and meet together uh, at Jerusalem. Later, it became Jerusalem, the place where God, wherever it was that God put His name. Now, the people were to take their tithe to that place and then eat it there, or at least part of it, in a feast of joy. That teaches us something about the tithe. The tithe is not just supposed to be reduced to some regularly write the check and put it in the plate. Write the check, put it in the plate. Give, give, give. The, the tithe is supposed to be a time of rejoicing in the goodness of God, a time of remembering that God has blessed us. And as part of the way that this happened in their culture, in, in, in this Mosaic time and in the Mosaic law, not only would they bring their tithe, but before they gave it, they would have one last meal and they would actually have a feast where they were feasting upon the tithe they were about to give to God. It was a great reminder. I want you to think about it. It was just a tithe, 10%. And yet they had a feast off of it. And then after they had a feast off of it, they had much to give to God. I mean, it was a great reminder that God has been good. God has been faithful. God has blessed me. God has taken care of me. And I'm not begrudgingly letting something go. I am joyfully and gratefully sowing into the work of God. And the process of doing it is a feast in and of itself. It is an amazing, wonderful thing. So they, they partook of part of their tithe. Your tithe is an expression of joy and gratitude. 
And I want to encourage you, especially those of you that, that do it faithfully week after week, remember that. Don't ever let it become just a something you do without thought. Each week, think about how good God has been to you. How faithful your God has been. How you wouldn't be where you are today if it wasn't for His graciousness. And we're celebrating that and we're remembering that. The second thing I want you to notice is that not only was the tithe for the feast, but in verse 23, it is for the purpose that you may learn to fear the Lord your God. That you may learn to fear Him. What does that mean? Tithing was a means of remembering how dependent they were upon God. And really that's what tithing is to us. It is a, it is a reminder of how dependent I am upon God. Can I share something with you that is a personal um, application in my own life? <clears throat> I'm not bragging and I'm not boasting, but I'm telling you the truth as I stand here before you and before God. I was saved 14 years ago and there's never been a time in my life when we didn't pay tithes. And when I say tithe, I mean at least 10%. There have been times it didn't make sense. There have been times that I, it was like, God, how are we going to live? How are we going to make it? But I'm going to tell you the truth. I had a healthy fear. I thought, God, my circumstance is bad enough now, but I couldn't imagine what it would be like if I wasn't in a position to be blessed by you. The last thing I needed to do when I was in a situation where it seemed like I didn't know how I was going to get out of it, the last thing I needed to do was start stealing from God to pay my bills. That's the view I had. I know what it is to have two kids in the home and be making 12 bucks an hour and trying to make a house payment and everything else. I know. I've been there. I've done that. I've lived that. And even then, was faithful, every paycheck, to give God first a portion of all that He'd given me. Fourteen years later, looking back on it all, I'd never change any of it. It taught me, and the tithe teaches us, to fear God, to trust God, to realize, Lord, You're the one that sustains me. You're the, you are the hope of my life. You are the hope of my sustenance. You are, you are everything to me. And my willingness to participate in your program, my willingness to come into your world and do things your way and be submissive to you and to sow into your kingdom is the evidence I trust you, God, with my kingdom. Even when it doesn't make sense. Even when it requires faith. So tithing was meant that you may learn to fear Him. We should fear to displease such an awesome God with a joyless attitude. The third thing that we see from our text is that provision was made for those who had too much grain or too many animals to bring all that way that they could sell them and bring the money. That's really the way that we do it today. We don't bring oxen. If you have oxen and you tithe in your oxen, please sell them and don't bring them to the church. We don't do it that way. But we see that even back then, they made provision to bring money. The fourth thing that we see is that the, a portion of the tithe was set apart for the work of ministry. The Levites. If you don't know what the Levites were, 
the Levites were the priests. They had been called by God to be set apart for the work of God. And as part of the laws that were set down for the Levites, unlike many of our um, churches today, and I'm not in any way whatsoever putting down bivocational pastors, but the law of the Old Testament, the Levites couldn't be bivocational. They couldn't raise herds. They couldn't plant fields. They could not work. They had to be totally committed to the work of God. And so they had no choice whatsoever to go out and work and to produce income. And God said, as a result of that, because the Levites have been set apart for the purpose of ministering to the people of God and to taking care of the things of God, they've got to be provided for somehow. And God said, I will provide for them through the offerings of the people that they bring to the church. And in a similar way, the same is true today concerning how the church operates. The fifth thing that we see is that not only were the tithes designated to support the Levites, but also to help the three most helpless groups of people in society, refugees, orphans, and widows. In our text, it seems that every three years there was a special offering that was brought, and it was the responsibility of the church to help take care of the refugees, the orphans, and the widows. And the same is true today. If we aren't helping those who need help most, brothers and sisters, we're not being the hands and feet of Jesus. These are the things the tithes did in the Old Testament. Now let's go to the New Testament. As we come to the New Testament, the picture changes significantly. Jesus mentions tithing a whopping two times. And both times it's really in a negative sense. Both times when Jesus references tithing, He references tithing in its legalistic abuse. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus said, verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. Now here's what He said about tithing. He said, These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. And then in Luke chapter 18, we have the parable of the Pharisee who went in and boasted of how great he was versus the publican who, uh, who, who beat his chest and cried out for mercy from God. And one of the things that Jesus said in His parable that the Pharisee said was this, I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. Those are the only two times you see Jesus reference tithing. Obviously, Jesus did not think of tithing as a spiritual cure-all. But He didn't look down on it either. He supported it. He did say, these things you ought to have done. But just without neglecting the other. And what's the point? The point that Jesus was making is you can go through all the motions in the world, brothers and sisters. You can go to church every service. You can give tithes faithfully. But ultimately, it's about a matter of the heart. And, and, and the problem is, it's not that it's possible to really have a heart that's truly right with God and not be doing those things. 
But it's possible to be doing those things and then trick ourselves into thinking that because we do stuff, that means our hearts are right with God. So tithing is not a spiritual cure-all, but Jesus is not rejected either. He just simply points out you can tithe everything and still not trust God. So Jesus mentions it twice, and then the Apostle Paul, in all of his teachings, in all of his writings to the church about how the church should operate, the truth is, Paul never even uses the word tithe. Not once. Doesn't mention it at all. Now, whether or not Paul taught his churches that he started to tithe, we don't know. But we do know when he wrote back to them, he never mentioned it. But his rules about giving in his letters seem to be as follows. First of all, Paul said, and I'm just going to give you the Scripture reference. On the first day of the week, that's Sunday by the way, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. That's 1 Corinthians 16.2. So on the first day of the week, they would actually come together, which is what we do, and they would give something to the church. Secondly, they gave according to their means and beyond their means of their own accord. So now we see that in the New Testament, giving is really supposed to meant to be done as we saw Abraham do it in Genesis chapter 14 on our own accord, not out of a grudgingly necessity to keep the law so that we're not breaking God's rules. That's First, Second Corinthians 8.3. Third, Paul said, each one must do, must, not should, must. Each one must do as he has made up his mind. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. This morning, let us honestly ask ourselves, do we, are we cheerful givers? Do we enjoy the opportunity to take what God has given us and sow it back into things that lift up His name, that bring people to Jesus, that build the kingdom of God, that further the purpose of God? And in 2 Corinthians 9 and 8, God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance so that you may always have enough of everything and may provide in abundance for every good work. The only other place in the New Testament where tithing is mentioned is Hebrews chapter 7, and it's only mentioned because it talks about Melchizedek, and it re-mentions that Abraham tithes to him. So why does the New Testament really say so little specifically on tithing? It says a lot about giving. Don't misunderstand the statement, but tithing. I have a conviction concerning the reason why. I think God took the focus off giving a tithe in the early church because He wants His people to ask a new question. The question that Jesus drives us again and again and again to ask is not how much should I give, but rather how much do I keep. One of the differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament is the Great Commission. I want you to think about that. In the Old Testament at large, the Jewish people were not a missionary people. But in the New Testament, Jesus said, go and tell all the world. 
And we, the church, guys, there is no plan B. There is no plan B. There is plan A. That's it. We, the church, the body of Christ, have been given the responsibility. We have been commanded to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And so that really separates the mission of the Old Testament versus the mission of the New Testament. The spiritual hope of the world is to come through us. And the task of accomplishing that is so immense that to try to settle the issue of what we should give based upon a fixed percentage of 10%, it just seems out of the question. My own conviction. Let me repeat. My own conviction is that families in America that are middle class and upper class who only give 10% of their income are guilty of robbing from God. That's my own conviction. And I've lived my life by it. When you really understand that all that I have is God's and that God has given it to me for the purpose of building His kingdom and glorifying His name, how in the world can I take 90% or more of what God has given me to help me get more comforts? How can I do it? How can that be? Studies show, and it's a terrifying thought, it's a horroring fact, that in the United States, that's the U.S., the average family that calls themselves evangelical Christians spends more money on dog food than they do in the church. Let us think in. Where are our hearts? What are we truly trying to build? Let it not be said of us that we honored God with our lips, but our hearts were far from Him. May we honor God in everything that we do. In a world where thousands and thousands of people a day starve to death, and more importantly, multitudes, more than thousands, are perishing in unbelief. What a silly question to ask is 10% the most we have to give. That's not the heart of New Testament Christianity. Grace raises the bar. New Testament Christianity says, hey, Jesus gave everything for me. He gave everything so I could be saved. He gave everything so my sins could be wiped away. And so I want to give everything to Him. It's irrational to think that giving 10% somehow settles the issue of good stewardship. It's not about a percentage. I contend, I mean, it makes sense to me. I don't know about you, but it makes sense to me. Surely those of us who know Jesus, Surely those of us who know Him in the free pardon of sin in a, in a personal way that the Old Testament saints didn't know, surely the least 
we could do is the same thing the Old Testament saints did. But as I've said, my conviction is now that we know Him in a personal way and that He has given us a great commission, surely we cannot settle the matter on anything that is small and unsacrificial. To commend tithing as the ideal simply does not capture the New Testament view of discipleship. God's looking for radical disciples. God's looking for people who are willing to be sacrificial. Here's what the New Testament says about giving. Your note taker, write them down. He who has two coats, let him share with him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Now that's Luke chapter 3 and verse 11. But he who has two coats, let him share with him who has none. That's 50%, not 10%. Zacchaeus stood and said, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods, half, I give to the poor. That's Luke 19 and 8. See, that's 50%. Again, it's not 10%. Jesus said in Matthew 19, 21, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. That's 100%. And then we see 100% again in Luke 14, 33. Jesus says, So therefore, whoever of you does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And then in the New Testament church, in Acts chapter 2, verse 44, all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they sold their possessions and goods and distributed them to all as any had need. And then in Acts chapter 4 and verse 34, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. That's 100%. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of liberality on their part. For they gave according to their means and beyond their means. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. The best way to capture the spirit of the New Testament is to understand it is a command of generosity. It's not one about how much must I give, but how much dare I hold on to and take away from building Christ's kingdom all for the purpose of building my earthly comforts. Paul said this, He said, I do not seek what is yours, but you. He said that to one of his churches. I do not seek what is yours, but you. I don't seek what is yours this morning. I just I seek you. And more importantly, God does not seek what is yours. He seeks you. Make no mistake about it, the way we handle what is ours is a reflection of how much we really, in our faith and in our heart, believe we belong to God and all that we have is God's. 
I'm going to ask our worship team to come this morning, and we're just going to sing a closing song together. Not necessarily going to give an invitation today, but I want us to, to solemnly and prayerfully consider, God, how much of me do you really have? God has a program. He has a program. And listen, I thought about going to Malachi chapter 3 this morning. I stayed away from it on purpose. But one of the things that text tells us is that when we refuse to enter into God's program and trust God and be faithful to God with our giving, that we, God says you're cursed with a curse. As I told you earlier, there was a healthy fear in me all these years. That's part of the reason why. I actually believe this. This is the Word of God. It doesn't break for you. It doesn't bend around you. It's true. It's true. It's true. And if we are not faithful to enter into God's program, not only do we rob ourselves of the blessings that come along with being faithful to God, we find ourselves under a curse. My prayer this morning is that you hear my heart when I say, I don't want what is yours. I don't. I want your heart. God wants your heart. And I thought about, you know, we talk about moving, we talk about building. and Guys, it's going to happen one of these days, but it's not going to happen until more of us Make the decision. It's time for me to do my part, getting connected and getting committed with my time, my talents, and yes, my treasures. On a regular basis. The church does not need this church, the church down the street, the church as worldwide, the church. God never built the church to, to work necessarily on your sympathy gifts. We don't need a one big time gift and everything's better. Do you go live in the way that you continue to live? What God wants and what God's looking for and what the church works on is faithful, committed givers. And this morning, for your sake, I plead with you, if that's not you, start. And I'm not going to name the, the number. I'm not going to say 30%. I'm not going to say 10%. I'm not going to say 5%. Just start. Start being regular. Start being faithful at learning to let go and give to God. And you watch. You watch. God will bless. You learn to do it as a regular way of life, you'll find that God blesses, that God is faithful. And it's almost as if it was just, it's like you didn't notice it was gone. I've been doing it now since I was saved at the age of 20 years old. And I can tell you that not only on the authority of the Word of God, but on the authority of my experience, which lines up with God's Word, as it always will. Lord, I pray that You'd move all across this room in Jesus' name. Father, I pray that You'd help us to be faithful, committed givers. God, help us to be men and women whose hearts yearn, yearn to help fund Your work and Your kingdom. God, may it not be said of us that we took all that You gave us and exhausted it on building our temporary kingdoms. 
But may we be regular givers, sowing into the eternal kingdom, reaching souls for Christ, helping the ministry of God go forth. Lord, move on our hearts this morning.
As we stand to our feet, we sing a song of closing. If there's a need in your life, you're welcome to come. We're going to sing one final song this morning.